You're listening to Meanwhile, episode 10. Do you ever remember that moment where you start an email only to get a text and then a Snapchat and then your dog's biting at your ankles and then your spouse comes home and is talking about their day and all of a sudden you've forgotten about what you were doing in the first place? And that's what we'll be talking about today, that darned topic called focus and how we can get a little better at it together. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Michael Melcher, good to hear your voice, man. Hey, Michael Terrell, good to hear your your voice as well. What's up? A few weeks ago, I was sitting on my couch after the kids went to sleep and thought, I gotta, I gotta watch some TV. This is the golden age of television. And my friends, formerly in the Obama administration, had all told me that the hot show to watch is Designated Survivor, about this guy who is the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development uh, in the cabinet. Uh, which is sort of considered a lesser of the cabinet positions. And there's like some big terrorist attack during the State of the Union, and the whole Congress gets wiped out along with the Supreme Court and everybody else, and he's the designated survivor, so he becomes president. And everyone said, this is a really good show because it's really true to life in terms of how um, cabinet affairs and other chiefs of staff work. I was really having difficulty focusing and just staying sitting down in front of the television. And I thought, I can't even watch a 44-minute television show anymore. I really lost a lot of my powers of concentration. And I've been thinking more broadly about the decline of my <laughs> my discipline um, over the years. And this really came in stark relief after the election because I sort of felt I'd gotten this habit of just reading incendiary um, posts on Facebook that my friends would send me and that I would send to other friends, which is kind of pointless because we're all liberals and we all voted for Hillary Clinton and clearly that had not worked. And I thought, why am I doing this? Um, I'm not happy doing it. I'm not really learning anything. I don't think I'm accomplishing anything. And I'm just stuck in this reactive state. And I was also aware that I didn't seem to be able to make progress on a lot of other things that I had uh, been able to do before. So I was going really slowly on proposals. I put them off. I have this book I've been working on, but I wasn't working on it. And I thought, I got I to gotta, I gotta do something here. Yeah. So that's going to be our topic today. How to focus and get yourself to do the things you really want to do, being proactive in the life that you want and getting the things done that you really want to get done. And I relate to this topic as well, man. I was on a plane flying back from Hawaii a couple of weeks ago. It was very nice. Visiting my mom. And I had a few of these big... Does your mom live in Hawaii? She does. She has She has a home in Hawaii. She wow. and her husband, her new husband. Uh, it's, it's, I'd never gone to visit it before. It's, maybe we'll go there and record a Meanwhile episode sometime. It was gorgeous. Had a great time there. And the dilemma, though, was as I got back... To work mode and on the plane and the long trek home, I had a couple of things at the very top of my list that were important, a proposal and a big uh, packet document that I needed to deliver a client. And my plan was to just tear into these things as I got to the airport and got on the plane and I got about halfway home across the Pacific and I was doing everything but that. I was drafting little emails and notes and trying not to really engage with the TV episode on in front of me, but I was just in my zombie mode, sort of a low energy, avoidant place and uh, also like really mindless. Like hours sort of seep by without me really noticing when I'm in that mode. 
Wait, and so, but when you're in zombie mode, were you actually doing something or are you like staring out the window? Uh, it can be a little bit of both. It's oftentimes that I'm sort of doing things. I'm doing these low priority things that don't require much thought. And typically when I get to the end of a day like that or an end of a week like that, when it happens is I notice I've had the illusion of productivity. I've gotten some things done, but not the important ones. What's an example of a low productivity thing that you would do uh, versus something that's important, but you wouldn't do? An example is I'll read an email and spend time thinking about it, but not actually respond to it. Or I'll dig into my email inbox, like scroll down the list and start responding to emails that are really low priority for some reason, as opposed to doing the thing that I really need to get done that day. And what would be an example of something you'd be avoiding that's actually important? Well, I related to your example around if it's a sort of a big proposal that's going to require some thought and energy uh, and represents a lot of work on the back end, work that I know I will love doing, but is I'm somehow intimidated by or just not up for. And I was on the plane having this exact experience because I had a few of these big things to get done. And I had sort of in my best self said, okay, I'm going to attack these today. But instead, I was trolling through the back annals of my inbox and addressing these little piddling things that weren't important at all. Yeah, if I can even push you a little further. So you might even say you had a golden opportunity on a five-hour flight from totally. to San Francisco to do really hard work. And you didn't seem able to summon yourself to that totally and i felt completely unfocused all right well yeah. let's let's solve this for everyone so they don't have that terrible experience <laughs> <laughs> they can use all plane rides to maximal efficiency yeah. going forward well let's start with your example then so you were on this plane and you'd intended to do all this work and instead you found yourself into this zombie um, experience that wasn't fun or useful to you what was really going on for you then you know i think i I had this assumption I could just jump back into Michael Worker B mode. And actually, maybe I needed a little time to transition out of vacation or out of a more relaxed state. And I just didn't anticipate that at all. Uh, and so it instead showed up as me zombieing out. On well, there's almost, Airlines. there's almost an assumption that um, work is something you should be able to enter automatically. Um, right. Just sort of declare time for work and then you're fully in it. Totally. Um, but in that case, you needed a bit more of a transition period. Yeah. So I learned. So and I learned. so you're kind of setting yourself up for failure in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Hindsight, it definitely seems that way. Uh, what about for you and the focus things you were talking about? Well, when I um, avoid doing stuff that I think is important, for example, working on my amazing book that will help millions and make me famous. Um, Can't wait. Uh I think I spend a lot of time thinking ahead of time about how I'm going to feel doing it as opposed to just doing it. And I'm not declaring it. It's like the opposite is I need to kind of declare it an actual workspace that I'm going into. If I just open my computer and start typing my manuscript, I'm likely to be tempted by other stuff um, to wander over and check Gmail or look at Facebook or get something to eat. And I will do that all the more so if I'm having anxiety about what I'm writing. So when you write mm -hmm. a book, about 90% of the time, you're if you choose to look at what you have, you've done, you think, oh, this is lame and this is boring and yeah. there's no point in doing this and it will sound really dumb. And all you, what you really need to do is just keep on writing as opposed yep. to getting to that judgment level. So there's something about how, how I was setting up the work that just doesn't work. But I think on a broader level, the real issue 
is also not just how we enter into work, but also how we deal with reactivity and stimulation. Hyper-stimulated these days, for sure. Hyper-stimulated and interrupted all the time. So, like, um, for a while, when there was a certain issue of the operating system for my iPhone that would s- automatically send me these news alerts that I didn't really want to see because they were always depressing. But they would pop up and I would, I would kind of look at them and I couldn't actually control them. I couldn't figure out how to get out of the alert. And each one would kind of rile me up. And I was mm-hmm. very much aware that um, I was responding to something that was planted by something somebody else that was getting an emotional reaction. You know, I was contributing nothing to the state of the world by by reading this, but it was diminishing my own ability to concentrate. So, you know, in that case, I could blame whoever's in charge of Apple these days. But on a larger note, I would just notice that between tasks, I would take a quick look at Politico or um, see if anybody new had emailed me or, you know, respond to a text message noise um, or look at New York Times online or, you know, the dreaded Facebook. I would do this. I wouldn't actually enjoy it because half the time I would come across information that would make me sort of upset. Mm-hmm. Or, and I definitely... So what kept you coming back? Well, they say that the definition of an addiction is that you do something that is positive for you in the short run and negative for you in the long run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, alcohol, drugs, et cetera, fall into that category. Yeah. But I think there's also something true about any type of, of internet uh, response because I'm looking there because I'm feeling a little bit bored or a little bit curious. And I think that there'll be some kind of um, gratifying thing. And I think text messages even more so like, oh, somebody wants to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's going to happen. And, you know, I'm, it's a body mind thing. So I'm also responding to like the little noise it makes. Totally. But then it's actually not doing anything for me. I think it's very much like eating potato chips. Like it's, it tastes good. You want to do it. You keep doing it. But there's no nutritional value, and it just makes you feel bloated and like a big fat loser when, you, when you're done. And <laughs> well, yet, in each individual moment, you do want to eat that potato chip. Um, totally. Well, I relate to because getting off that plane, I felt a bit like a big fat loser. And <laughs> <laughs> just like waddling through SFO is great. And I also, I'm hearing in there a little bit of this desire to avoid like i'm trying to think what is it what does it get us when we take a look at that text message or i engage with the politico notification and it for me i know it gives me a sense of relief particularly when i'm doing something else that's sort of hard or requires a lot of my thinking power or i'm feeling a little anxious about the the article i'm writing or the book i'm working on i can have this instantaneous sort of relief either connecting to somebody through a text message or by digesting a, a sports headline or something like that. Yeah, I think I think that our lives involve a lot of anxiety and boredom and uncertainty. You know, sometimes very acutely, but often just a somewhat low level of it. Yeah. Um, throughout every moment of the day, and if you have an out, if you have a way of getting away from that, um, we will we will seek it. And I think for many totally. decades we didn't have that because we didn't have these little devices we could constantly check so you just have to sort of suffer through it and you do get through it and i think you develop more resilience that way but now we have this option so for example i i ride the new york subway a lot and i observe people around me and most people are very absorbed in their devices um sometimes right. a book or what have you sometimes nothing right and what i always sort of notice is do people get up for an elderly person 
or a pregnant woman or a person who is awkwardly carrying kids around. Hmm. And which is sometimes you, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and twins. And, and 95% of the time, um, people don't get up or people in the vicinity don't get up. And for a long time I thought, Oh, these terrible people, they have no manners. And because I'm always scanning to see if somebody needs my seat more than I am. Cause I'm a helper. But I recently decided it's not actually that it's not that they're terrible people. It's that they actually don't see anybody around yeah. them. And the reason they don't yeah. see it is that they're really focused in on these devices. And the reason they're so focused on the devices is that actually there's a lot of stress and anxiety when you're on a crowded subway car. Like it's a very unnatural thing. You're underground. You're with mm-hmm. a lot of different people. You need to get somewhere. Um, you have very limited space. And I actually think that these devices are sort of a relief to people. That's why they do it. That's also, by the way, why I think as soon as a plane lands, everybody immediately starts Which calling people, yeah. hey, I just landed in SFO, because I think it's an anxiety response. You know, so in those cases, it's really obvious, but I actually think that people do this on a moment-by-moment basis, like, oh, I'm feeling bored, check, uh, check something. I'm feeling stressed, check something. I think my book is dumb, check something. Uh, this meeting is a little tiresome, check something. Yeah, um, yeah. But well, our- the, the, the effect of that is that we you know, can't get anything done. Well, our technology is designed to get us to re-engage with it. It's designed to make us addicted to it. And the way I hear you describing it is it's designed to help us regulate our emotions, and particularly the uncomfortable negative ones that we encounter in the day-to-day experience of living. I'll say anesthetize rather than regulate. Huh, yeah. What do you mean by that? I mean that that regulation would imply that we're sort of leveling them out um, in some kind of useful way, I think, and that we're hmm. being mindful of it. Sure. But instead, this is the opposite. It's like... Uh, take this or smoke this. You know, you won't think, you won't feel anything. Then, right? You just feel like this sort of uh, detachment from where you are. Totally. Um, yeah, and I, I think, think that's what the devices do. Yeah, I hear you. I think that is a numbing effect. And in the moment, in the short term, like you said, the short term versus long term, that numbing instant feels better than whatever it was we were thinking about or having to face or work on or trying to produce the moment before. Even though when we string a series of these short-term moments together, it obviously doesn't help us yeah. in the long term. Well, let's talk about that second. Like, why is it better not to walk through life numbed? What's the downside here? Well, I, I talked about, I felt I had been losing my concentration and I was kind of living too much on adrenaline um, in a way that didn't allow me to do what I wanted. Uh, another perspective is what is the, process of creativity and thinking like. So um, as you might know, I've been very influenced by this writer named Julia Cameron, who wrote a book called The Artist's Way and about 10 other similarly titled books. And I first read it 20 years ago, and I continue to draw from it. And she basically talks about how to be creative and access your creativity, regardless of how you label yourself. And one thing she says is one of the primary rules of creativity is containment. So you can't be creative if you have too much coming at you, you need a zone of stillness and, and protection in order to listen to yourself, to reach into yourself. Um, she sometimes has used this, this metaphor of reaching into the well, of seeing what's in there. And if yeah. you're constantly being um, intruded upon uh, or hyper-stimulated, you're not likely to get to those places or to sit with them or to even see what is most valuable. So that's one. Totally. Um, well, let's let's talk about how you how you get to that place. And I, my sense is there's more to 
discuss here. But one of the things that I'm realizing as we're having this conversation is that there's this one half of me or this one half of my brain that's hearing that and totally is in alignment with it. I'm like, yes, I want that stillness. I want that containment to go be able to do that type of deeper, creative, more productive work. But then there's also this part of me that really likes the zombie mode. And that's the addicted part of me to the short-term stress relief uh, action, the taking care of low priority tasks that are easier on my brain. And so I, as much as I want to say, yeah, I'm totally with you, Michael Melcher, there's this little part of me that I know is also hungry for the potato chips and zombie mode type activity. So how, how do you get there? How do you get into your containment zone? Huh. Well, I think on one level, you just recognize that both of those are, are true, that there is a kind of fulfillment from just like, uh, reload, reload, reload. What's new? What's new? <laughs> Who right. else is trying to connect with me? What else can entertain me? Totally. Um, that can be satisfying to some people for a period of time. And there's this other idea that, that deeper engagement is also satisfying. So this concept of flow, which was developed by this, um, sociologist named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about. Wait, what? Say that again. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. <laughs> it's a Hungarian I've, name uh, from Romania. Um, I've mispronounced his name for years. That's right. I talked about Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. So <laughs> cool. practice it at home. Yep, I will. He talked about engagement and peak experiences. And a peak experience is where you're so involved in something that you don't notice a passage of time. And this may be in leisure, but often it's in work. And the characteristics are you have a hard task, a challenging task. You have a level of skills that's more or less matched to the task and you have ongoing feedback. And so when you're able to really engage in something like that, at the end, you're like, that felt awesome. That felt so great. I'm on top of the world. And I am quite confident that that feeling is way more satisfying than, hey, I got 22 likes on my picture of the twins on the swings wearing matching outfits. Um, You know, but there's work toward getting there, it's not easy and it often doesn't feel that great while you're doing it. So it's kind of a yeah. choice. Um, one, have you ever had this experience in your life? Okay, you want to repeat it, then you got to get more engaged. Yeah. So as you're going through and watching Designated Survivor and you're realizing just how distracted you are, and maybe you're thinking again about this idea of the artist's way and containment and remembering just how more satisfying flow is, how did you get there? What have you done in the last couple of weeks to bring more of that back into your world? Okay, well, interestingly, a side note is that Csikszentmihalyi said that most people when watching television have a mental state that is similar to low-grade depression. Um, so if you're just channel surfing, it's not stimulating. Although people who get really into certain things and they're really focused on it can have a high degree of, of, of simulation. So maybe if you're really into Downton Abbey and you're kind of noticing all the period details or certain types <laughs> it's, it's of, different. certain types of sports I hear are very engaging if you're able to stay with it. Okay. Well, I tried a technique that I used last year in graduate school because I felt like things were at an extreme and needed an extreme solution. This is my candle technique. So what I do is I designate a task, uh, for example, write a proposal or work on my book. I pick a period of time that is doable but a slight stretch. So in my case, that was 30 minutes. I felt I could do 20, but I thought 30 would be a little harder. Yep. I turned off the Wi-Fi router, turned off my phone. You actually turned I'd, off the Wi-Fi router in your house. Well, I just, the little thing on the computer where it, has a Got little it. Wi-Fi thing. Turn that off. I, I pictured you going and ripping cords no, on the I wall. No, I didn't do that. But <laughs> <Okay>. thank, <laughs> uh, my version of turn the Wi-Fi writer is clicking on the little thing that, Got it. that I can receive no more signal. Uh-huh. Um, I set a timer 
And if it's 30 minutes, I'll set it for 33 so that I am not counting the minute it takes me to open my document. And then my little insight that I got in grad school is I light a candle. And the candle rule is I have to work as long as the candle's on. If I want to do something else that's not my project, I have to blow out the candle and go do that thing. And then I have to light the candle again. And the idea is I'm signaling clearly to myself with a physical action that I'm stepping in and out of a task. Mm. And it's interesting because just not wanting to blow out my candle because you get that smoky thing um, (laughs) kept me on track. And by the way, I then downloaded a candle app that I use when I'm going to my office or places that would not um, look favorably on lit candles. Uh And that's just as effective. And then I just start working. And sure enough, inevitably the timer goes off. I'm still working and I keep doing it for about 10 more minutes. That alone really helped my productivity very quickly. Then there's another issue of what do you do once the task is over, but I'll leave that for a second. So what do you think about my amazing candle solution? I love it. I love it. I'm also, the thing you didn't even mention, which is an added benefit when you have the real candle going, is it probably creates a nice little ambiance and you know nice smell for getting the work done. There's something almost even meditative about it, which I totally dig. It's, it's a signaling thing. It's like, okay, yeah. this is the place for work. This is the mm-hmm. place for doing something that I view as important. This is not just any other minute in a day that is interchangeable with any other minute. Right, right. Well, I, I love the idea of this candle and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it out and see sort of what the candle adds. Because one of the things that I, after I had my big loser experience on Hawaiian Airlines a couple weeks ago, (laughs) I similarly thought about how do I get back to my more uh, productive self, my more intentional self, when I actually just need to go execute on these things that I know are really important, but might be things where I look for those distractions. And uh, I came back to this technique called the Pomodoro method or the Pomodoro timer. And it's a technique a buddy of mine had told me about a couple years back that's really, really similar to what you just described. And it's basically this idea of setting a timer. The, The classic method is for 25 minutes, but you can flex it a little bit. And you set that timer and agree with yourself to focus on just completing one task. Biggest thing for me is I close my email inbox. I put my phone on silent or airplane mode and I focus on just that one task. For, it's just for 25 minutes. If I have something else spring up into my head, I just say, I can get back to that in 25 more minutes if I need to. And the way the technique actually works is you're supposed to work on that thing for 25 minutes. When the timer goes off, force yourself to take a five minute break, come back either continue on that same thing or choose a new thing and do another 25 minutes, five minute break after the timer goes off. And a couple of things that I've noticed from doing this that I've really benefited from. One is it's definitely helping me stay more focused because I don't have this, this fear. I don't have this fear that like, Oh, I got to get to this other thing. Cause otherwise I, I won't be able to get to it later. Cause I'm just like, it's just 25 minutes. I can come back to the, this thing that, you know, skim through the back of my brain. Two is it's helping me get a better sense of how long it takes me to actually get certain types of work done. So when I'm thinking about writing proposals or uh, doing follow-up notes with one of my clients, I'm getting a really good sense of, is this half a Pomodoro? Is this, this is actually a three Pomodoro type exercise. And I'm starting to be able to scope out my days a lot better. I sit down at the beginning of the day and I actually assign numbers of Pomodoros to tasks that I know are going to require focused work. And I'm starting to get more accurate with how much time I need to allocate. So I, at the beginning of my day, can actually have a really clear sense of what's realistic to get done today and what's not. In terms so of just can I ask, what is, the, what is the greatest number of sequential 
pomodoros you've done, or as we'd say in fake Italian, Guanto pomodoro maximo por ti. Well, let me tell you, I don't know so many. Uh, well, well, that's the other thing. The technique supposedly it calls for after you've completed four in a row, you're supposed to take a longer break, like a 15 or 30 minute break, and then start again. Um, the most that I've done in a day, though, has been uh, about eight or nine. Eight? That's a lot. I feel like you could, although that's like four hours, but still, I feel like well, that's the amazing, that would change your life. It's the amazing thing, right? <laughs> People who, who subscribe to this method actually say, all you really need are six or eight of these a day in terms of the amount of work that requires your focused attention, and you're just way more productive. And the rest, you know, the rest of your time is, is doing your meeting you know, people-facing type work or stuff that doesn't involve just sitting there in a focused way. But you really only need a handful of these a day to get done the essential things that need to get done. But one of the things I found, and I sometimes violate the violate the rules, is that if I get two, three, four Pomodoros in and I'm riffing on something that requires more deep thinking time, it actually puts me in to my focused place where I've built some momentum around just isolating out the distractions and just giving myself to this thing that's I'm having a flow like experience and I know is important long term. And so it becomes easier it's like, if I need to stay heads down for another hour at the end of the day. It's awesome. It's like in Star Wars when you blast through to hyperspace or whatever that thing's called. Exactly. Like punch it. Punch it, Chewy. <laughs> well, love the Pomodoro method. It sounds like it's very related to my candle method. It is. They're super closely rated. But here here's my question. Yeah. Um, what do you do during the breaks? Because I actually, for me, a break is a breakdown because <laughs> if I'm taking a break and I don't even like the internet that much, I'm a little transgressive that way. I don't find it that awesome. But if I'm having a You're break, I think the first yes. thing I would do if I'm not thinking would be to sort of, oh, let's just click on something and see what's there. Right. And for me, I don't want to lay this on all the millennials listening, for me, it is not relaxing or restorative to go looking around the internet or or whatever benefit there might be is probably way overshadowed by other things I could do that would count totally. as like an actual break. Yeah. Like, I don't know, walking down the hall and talking to somebody or going outside or, you know, if I knew how to knit, I would like knit. I don't know how to knit, <laughs> but, you know, do a craft project for five minutes. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about every example you just gave that's more productive than clicking on something uh, is my one rule for the break time is to d move my body in some way. So I don't knit either. So I don't pull out the, the yarn. But I, I try to get up <laughs> and walk around. I go refill my water. I uh, walk down the hall and talk to uh, a colleague in my co-working space or um, I Charlie, my dog, my Australian shepherd. I'll go and just, you know, wrestle with him for a few minutes. Tell you, here's some crumbs of affection I'm going to throw to you during minutes 26 to 30. <laughs> right. Well, I feel like a good mantra would be stand up and turn around, right? Uh -huh. Like move your body, stand up, but then face away from your, your computer yeah, or your phone or whatever it is and actually open up your eyes to the rest of the world. And maybe there's something there that is actually more stimulating. I think this is – I'm going to build in some Pomodoros with candles. I, I love it. I love it. And tell, you know, let me know how it goes. And the cool thing about this is that it's – it's not designed to say, and don't ever check your phone again, but instead sets aside the time where you want to do this productive heads down work and helps you protect it so that when you get later in your day and you're on the subway home and you actually want to check the NCAA basketball scores or you want to go home and uh, you know put on the, the, the TV show, 
it's just slotted into a place where it feels like it belongs and it's not pulling you away from productive focus time and giving you this like unwanted zombie experience in the middle of your day. All right. I think that our listeners will write us with lots of great examples of how they're using this. I want to throw, yeah. throw one little piece of theory out here to people to support what we're doing. Years ago, there was this book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle that Love everyone him. was reading. Yeah, very hard read at a certain point. Um, yeah. But the main takeaway I got was his phrase, your mind is not you. In other words, your mind is a, is a tool. It should be your servant. It should not be your master. And what he means by that is don't mistake everything that walks through your head as some kind of commandment that you have to act on. And I think this really ties nicely to what you said about our devices being engineered to addict. The fact that I have a desire to reach out and text somebody or look at the New York Times or some less publicly approved of website, that doesn't mean that I really want to do that or that I need to do that or that it makes sense to do that. It just means that in that moment, I'm having an impulse, which may come from myself or it may come from external conditioning. And my true self could actually be at a higher level of that and choosing not to have that reaction, choosing to sort of feel that moment of, and just let it, let it ride and, and stay on task in my Pomodoro. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Observe the thought as it kind of streams by our brains rather than become Entrapped in it. Entrapped. <laughs> yeah, entrapped by it, enslaved by it. Totally. Okay, homeworks. homeworks. What, what can people do to get a little bit more focus in their lives and you know, learn from our up and down examples? Well, I want to commend to everybody my candle technique, either with a real candle or a, an app, or you can maybe draw one if you wish. And think of something that requires your attention, and it shouldn't really be responding to emails unless it's a really complicated and hard one. Pick a time that for you is meaningful and a little bit of a stretch. So people have different levels here. Some might want two hours. Some For some people, 10 minutes of no interruption without access could be an issue. And just check right. it out. See what happens. Do it two or three times and, and see whether you get more done. And also if it has any impact on like the mental and emotional comic strip that's going on in your in your head. I dig. I will be one of those trying out the candle method for sure. And I want to add one layer to that. And that's for anybody who's trying that out to notice what sort of thoughts and feelings come up within you while you're trying to do that focused work that are sort of arguing against it. Because the reality is when we try to do these things, uh, there are parts of us, the zombie mode in all of us, that may throw a little bit of a shit fit or, or try, to, <laughs> try to argue against us, saying, no, don't do it. So just try to notice those voices, maybe write them down and see if you can't make counter arguments to whatever they're arguing for to keep you in the candle method or something like the Pomodoro method and have more success with focus. That's a great additional suggestion. So great talking to you again, Michael T. Always, man. Until next time.